This is American Viewpoints with Mike Ferguson. Here's something to think about. You are hearing about it uh, somewhat now, but contact tracing, remember that term, could be the next big push that governments want when it comes to containing coronavirus. A couple questions. Will it work? Two, what about the unintended consequences, including your privacy? I'm Mike Ferguson. Thanks for staying with us here on American Viewpoints. Uh, the concept itself actually makes sense. I mean, from a logical perspective, it makes sense. I'm joined now by J.D. Tuchilli. He's a Reason Magazine contributing editor. And uh, J.D., I just want to compliment you. The title of your recent op-ed that just came out this week, COVID-19, Contact Tracers, or Cootie Cops, and I think you should win some kind of literary award just for the title itself. Well, I hope I get that. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, the concept, I mean, let's talk about what they want to do, and that is if somebody, when somebody gets sick or gets infected by COVID-19, and I had it back in March, I'm recovered from it, what they would have done then is to say, okay, Mike, let's figure out who you might have infected. That kind of makes sense as a strategy, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. It's really anti-epidemic 101. It's one of the basic public health tools dating back uh, a long time. And if you do it right, uh, not only is it effective, you find out um, you know, who, who's infected with that disease you're worried about, who they've been in contact with, and you can hopefully cut it off before it spreads. Um, it actually may head off the need or at least the demand for more intrusive measures. So South Korea went into it pretty hard. Other countries went into it pretty hard. And in Asia in particular, well, South Korea and Japan and such, they were able to do contact tracing early on, started before it spread so far that they had to lock down their entire societies. So it really is promising, and it's not something that's been newly invented. It's been done before. And Google and Apple, they announced a few weeks back that they were trying to come up with an app that you could opt into. They said it would just be voluntary, and if you get sick, you just report it on the app, and then whoever else has the app that you came in contact with would get notified that somebody they were near. And that sounds fine too. So what's the concern? I mean, what is it that we have to watch out for as we hear governments now saying we're going to hire armies of contact tracers? I mean, what's the worry here? The worry is, is the tracing being abused, the data being abused. When, get, when Google and Apple offered to do their con, uh, contact tracing app, one of the things that their designers had in mind was the way China did it, which was certainly not privacy friendly. China centralized all the data. Um, they, were, they ran their algorithms. People didn't even know why they were getting a, a red symbol on their app that then banned them from traveling on trains, entering into stores, all sorts of things. So Google and Apple had heard that, a lot of people heard these horror stories, and, they, um, and the two tech giants wanted to make sure that contact tracing could be done in a privacy-respecting way, both out of concern for privacy in and of itself, but also so that people would use it. When Singapore imp implemented a privacy tracing app, people uh, refused it. Uh, only about 15, 20% of the population there signed up to use the app because they didn't trust the Singapore government to respect their privacy, you know, being that it is the Singapore government. But there's an effort here by the tech giants to be privacy respecting, um, both because we all value our privacy and also to persuade us that we can trust this particular approach to contract tracing and that we should participate. Let me follow up on that because, you know, people are scared right now and I understand it. So why is it important to respect privacy when the mantra that we're hearing over and over is we just have to stop the virus because it is making people sick. It is killing people. Governments are ordering businesses closed and all out of fear of this virus. So why is privacy so important? 
even if we put the privacy aside as a concern in and of itself, if we say, okay, we got to suspend civil liberties and privacy concerns because pandemic, um, you have real problems then portraying the rest of persuading the rest of the population to go along. When China started cracking down, I mean, when they started dragging people out of their apartments in order to quarantine them, people stopped going in for tests. If they weren't critically ill, they, and they got the sniffles and they thought they had COVID, they didn't go get tested because they didn't know how they'd be treated, whether they'd even be allowed to stay at home once the test took place. You can extrapolate that to the US. If we have contact tracing here, and, and we have a history in this country of the government taking data, misusing it badly, creating no fly lists, people getting on it because their name looks like somebody else's name. Um, you know, Edward Snowden revealed to us that the NSA and the FBI abuse our, our personal private information. If we can't persuade people that their data is gonna be used in a respectful way, they will do the same thing. They will stop going in for COVID tests and we'll never get the contact tracing underway, no matter how much we, uh, we mandate it, and no matter how much we may dismiss privacy concerns, because the population at a significant percentage won't participate. We're visiting with J.D. Tuchili, uh, Reason Magazine contributing editor. The recent op-ed that you can find on the uh, Reason website is COVID-19 contact tracers or cootie cops. And once again, I just want to compliment you on that title. That's one of the best ones I've, <laughs> I've seen for a long time. And uh, kind of on a similar vein here of what you were just saying, J.D., is a lot of times, whether it's the media or in politics or on social media, the disagreements over how to deal with COVID-19 is being kind of framed tribally. If you resist any sort of government effort, people are painted as selfish, as uncaring, as troublemakers, when that's not fair, in my opinion. Um, now, there are some people who probably are. But there's a lot more complexity to that resistance to just doing whatever government says. What is your take when you hear that sort of dichotomy? Well, yeah, we're in a completely polarized society now. It's, it's broken into two large tribes, Team Blue, Team Red, Republicans, Democrats, however you want to put, frame it. And people don't listen to each other at all. They talk past each other. They have different value sets. Social psychologists says that even, say that even when they use the same words like equality or liberty or fairness, they don't mean the same thing. And so people don't try to persuade anymore. They just villainize. If I raise a privacy concern, someone who's, who, who puts a higher emphasis on uh, risk aversion isn't going to listen to me say, no, I, I value my liberty more. Well, they're going to hear me, uh, they're going to hear me say something that they find horrendous and just demonize me. And someone on my side might do the same thing and start talking like cowards who don't want to reopen society on the other side. That does, that's not constructive. It makes for a society in which we just try to stuff our opinions down each other's throats instead of making room for each other to make decisions and live our own lives as best we can in a shared society. Um, so if we don't get away from that polarization, and I'll go on and say I don't see an easy way of getting away from that polarization on any issue. I think we're stuck with it for the time being. But because we have that polarization, um, the COVID pandemic has just become yet one more thing for us to pick, you know, pick sides on and to demonize each other and to, and to try to send the cops on each other about. Yeah, J.D., let me ask you about, again, of course, this conversation is specifically about the contact tracing that we're hearing a lot about. I think in the coming weeks, we're going to hear a lot more about that. One of the things people fear and tell me if you share this or whether you think it's more, more uh, just overblown fear, is that once government at any level assumes that sort of power, assumes that sort of intrusion, 
they're very, very hesitant to give it back up. If we've got the, if they've got the right to come and and search us and demand um, our whereabouts, that they're going to maintain that this is something that's for the overall good, and they're not going to give that back. That's a fear I think people have. Uh, is that just uh, hyperbole, or is that actually something we need to worry about? It is something we need to worry about. In fact, it's so common that historians have a term for it. They call it the ratchet effect. During crises, governments expand their power. Uh, when the crisis passed, they draw back a bit, but they never draw back to where they were. The government power ratchets up, the intrusion ratchets up. So we're in the post 9-11 days. Um, those of us who flew before 9-11 remember what it used to be like, and it changed a lot with 9-11. Uh, I think we can assume that life is going to change again now after, uh, after COVID. And just looking at airports and flying, I mean, you're going to see another ratchet effect on that. Some of that will be justified, but a lot of it will be just because they can or just because they don't want to get blamed for something going bad in the future. There's a lot of CYA that goes on in this, too. And uh, so officials may not be nefarious in their intentions to expand their power, but they do have an incentive to expand their power base, the role in their bureaucracy, and also to make sure they don't get blamed for not doing something in the future, because they can always say, well, we tried. Whereas if, if they leave people alone and something bad happens, there will always be a lot of fingers pointed at them. All right, we're going to find your article. It's uh, reason.org, I believe, right? Or is it .com? Reason.com. .org is the foundation that publishes us. They're both great. J.D., thanks so much for the uh, conversation. Uh, hopefully it's given some people something to think about. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, well, just ahead, you're seeing it regularly now. Businesses basically giving government the bird and reopening anyway, despite the executive orders they're under. We're talking to one of those businesses' lawyers about their defiance, and that's just ahead right here on American Viewpoints. Sweet strawberry icing. You're in goodwill and just past that vintage denim jacket you spot. Miniature donut earrings. You lean in. Ah, that's the scent of shopping success. Because at Goodwill, every item you buy funds local job training and more. So bring home those donut earrings and bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 